Hi friends, welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. All right, we've talked about the condescension of God. Uh, basically, we're, we're saying that the whole life and ministry of Jesus Christ culminating in his, the Garden of Gethsemane, Golgotha, and the resurrection, that is the work of atonement, at one between God and us, bringing us into communion with him. So we've talked about how he creates the, this redemption. And now we're going to talk about what the atonement does. We're going to talk about um, how this redemption looks in real life. And so to do that, we're going to look in the book of Acts. And so Acts chapter one starts like this. The former trustees have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So just a, a little bit of historical context. This is part two of a letter written by a guy named Luke the same guy that wrote the former trustees or the gospel of Luke. Now, Luke is a physician and he was a mission companion to Paul. Side note, that's since he's Paul's homie. That's why um, part of the reason why this book is going to have such a hard Paul slant to it. So he wrote um, of what Jesus began to do and teach. And now he's going to do uh, write what he continues to do. He says, until that day in which Jesus was taken up after he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandment to the apostles whom he had chosen. So sometimes this whole book is called the Acts of the Apostles. I submit that a better name would be the Acts of Jesus through his Holy Spirit and apostles. Like this is where we're seeing the redemption of Jesus Christ at work. We're, we're seeing what it looks like in real life. To whom he, Jesus, showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Okay, so Jesus is alive. He is resurrected. He made this infallibly proven to those who saw him. Uh, this is something we talked about last time. And then we get this small short thing where it says, he stays with them for 40 days, speaking to them things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So what is this 40 days of speaking about the kingdom of God? Well, there's actually pretty good evidence from early Christian sources that he is passing on to them what we would call the temple rituals or ceremonies. The way he is teaching them about the things of the kingdom of God is through this ritual ceremonies. Now, we as Latter-day Saints, we, we've sometimes not paid attention to the instruction in the temple on what we are and aren't supposed to say, and we have erred on the side of not saying anything. I don't think that's great. Here's a reminder. In the whole endowment ceremony, there's like two minutes worth of stuff that we don't reveal. The rest we can talk about in a sacred, respectful way, like we would talk about scripture or anything God's trying to teach us about the kingdom of God. So anyway, Here's what we can gather about what Jesus taught from ancient fragments about this ancient ceremony that Christians were taught about the kingdom of God and participated in. So first, from Cyril of Jerusalem, he says that they put on new clothing as part of this ritual. He says, quote, As soon as ye entered, ye put off your tunic or your street clothes. And this was an, in an image of putting off the old man with his deeds. Okay. Then, after you perform this whole big ritual for yourself, you would then perform it for those who had died before you, 
Epiphanius, he says, and I'm going to butcher some of these names, so my apologies. Epiphanius, he says, we remember the dead by performing ritual prayers and carrying out certain ordinances and by making certain special arrangements. That's cool, right? Clement of Alexandria, he says this, the good or the righteous man must repeat all the same ordinances again while naming the soul of such and such a person on whom I am thinking of in my heart and mind, whom he thus mentally accompanies through the proper number of transformations as he becomes baptized and sealed with the signs of the kingdom. See that, right? Jesus talks for 40 days about the kingdom of God, and this person is given the signs of the kingdom. Kind of cool. Now, one of the ordinances for the dead that received particular attention in the ancient world was baptism. You see this in the New Testament. Hermas says it like this. It is, it is necessary for them to come up through the water in order to be made alive, or otherwise none can enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, even the dead receive the seal. The seal, of course, is the water. Epiphanius says again, from Asia and Gaul has reached us the account or tradition of a certain practice, namely that when any die without baptism among them, they baptize others in their place and in their name so that rising in the resurrection, they will not have to pay the penalty of having failed to receive baptism. For this reason, this tradition which has been reached us is said to be the very thing which the Apostle Paul himself refers to in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty nine. Now, additionally, according to ancient sources, um, one of the, the, the ceremonies or rituals that are being taught about the kingdom of God is uh, an anointing ceremony and then a reception of a priestly garment. Cyril of Jerusalem says it this way, you were given an anointing, the antitype of which was the anointing of Christ. He was anointed with what was called the olive oil of exaltation. You were anointed on your brow with uh, and other sense organs, and so while the body is anointed in an outward appearance with oil, the soul is sanctified by the life-bestowing Holy Spirit. First of all, you're anointed on the brow that you may clearly perceive the glory of the Lord with a wide-open mind. Then your ears that you might receive the hearing ears of the mysteries of God. After that, the breast and the seat of feeling, passion, and thought that clothed with the breastplate of righteousness, you may stand against the wiles of the devil. Pretty cool, huh? Further in the Testament of Levi, it says, the first, anointed of, uh, the first anointed me with holy oil, the second washed me with pure water and put a holy glorious vestment, put on me a holy glorious vestment in order that I might serve as a priest for the Lord God. Following this, from what we can tell, there is then an instruction accompanied by tokens. First Enoch says, And behold, there came forth from heaven a being in the form of a snow-white person and three others with him. Those ones seized me by the hand. Then, after these rituals and symbols about the kingdom of God, they pray together. John Chrysostom, Chrysostom, he says it this way, It is specifically for the living that we pray standing with upraised hands. 
Cyril of Jerusalem says, In the circle we pray for those who are sick and afflicted. In short, we pray for whoever is in, help, is in need of help. Then in Jeshua, it says, The apostles and their wives all form a circle uh, around the Lord, who says he will lead them through the secret ordinances and shall give them eternal progression. Then all the apostles clothed in their garments made a circle facing the four directions of the cosmos and Jesus at the altar proceeded to instruct them in all the signs and ordinances which the sons of light must perform. Finally, along this idea of praying as part of this, Cyril of Jerusalem says the penultimate, that means second to last, the penultimate rite is a prayer circle. All standing in a circle around the altar exchange signs with each other and let us embrace. The embrace is in fact uh, the sign of mingling of souls and the erasing of all ill feeling. The priest then calls out, lift up your hearts, all speaking in unison to declare our unanimity of spirit. Following this, uh, they are then in this ritual brought to the gate and challenged and then permitted to enter into God's kingdom. Third Enoch says this, the person is challenged by the guardian angel at the gate or veil in response to his prayer for help. God sends him the archangel Metatron, that's a cool title, who presents himself before God's throne. God graciously receives him. And still in that same book of Third Enoch, a curtain hangs before God's throne separating his immediate presence from the rest of the heavenly world. To an angelic guardians of the gates, passwords have been given. Seals have been shown by the mystic on his way up to heaven. And finally, uh, still from that same book, sometimes secrets are announced by heavenly voice from behind the curtain. Finally, there's this idea of marriage that we see in the, these uh, early Christian sources. The Gospel of Philip says, Great is the mystery or ordinance of marriage, for without it the world could not exist. He goes on, But the woman is united to her husband in the bridal chamber. Indeed, those who have united in the bridal chamber will no longer be separated. If anyone becomes the son of the bridal chamber, he will receive the light. If anyone does not receive it while he is here, he will not be able to receive it in another place. And none other shall be able to escape Satan and his angels if he does not receive a male power and a female power, the bridegroom and the bride. One receives them from the mirrored bridal chamber. End quote. What do you think? I think it's sweet. As best we can tell, um, I, this is what's happening in reference to the 40-day the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's teaching them the things of the kingdom in a, a ritual, formal way, in a way that will help lock these ideas into their minds and create a covenant relationship with God that opens up the doors to more spirit, grace, help, and power. I also think it's pretty cool that Joseph Smith restores um, in the, the modern temple ordinances and how it reflects what we see in, in what would have been unknown to him in these early, church, uh, early Christian ancient sources here. But more than that, I want you to notice what the atonement of Jesus Christ does. Jesus is working, he is acting to save all who willingly enter into his family. As modern Western Americans, we are big time on individuality. 
But that really isn't a thing here. You're saved as a group by coming into the body of Christ, by entering into this covenant, into this family. It's a family thing. It's a kingdom thing. It's a citizenship thing. Uh, we, we come into his family and we receive that protection. We have different strengths, different weaknesses, different functions, but we work together to, to create in this chaos. Okay, back to the story, back to Acts chapter 1, verse 4. So the disciples are assembled together and commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith, Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they, therefore, were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father hath put in his power. That's interesting for us too, where he's just like, none your business. So, so often we feel like we need to know the whole picture, but he's like, trust me, I know what I'm doing. But, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Same for us. We get strength and power when we have the Holy Ghost. And that will enable you to be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, and in Samaria, and into the utmost parts of the earth. So this is a roadmap for the book of Acts, and I would suggest that it's a roadmap for us as we build the kingdom of God. We receive the Holy Ghost and then allow that power to act within us as we talk and speak and witness of Jesus Christ to all. It's our role to, to just let goodness saturate into our souls and then proclaim that good news to everybody we, we come in contact with. And I want you to notice how they witness of Jesus. Usually we witness of Jesus by saying, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. And there's all these rules. But I want you to pay special attention to what it looks like to witness um, from Jesus. Notice how they proclaim Jesus. Verse 9. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, Jesus was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, what Luke is doing here is he's drawing on imagery from Daniel chapter 7, clearly showing Jesus is the son of God, linking that old prophecy and showing him as the Messiah, the true king uh, enthroned in heaven and showing the kingdom of God initiated. You're going to see this um, enthroning of Jesus image come up again and again in different visions here. So again, I want you to, to notice like, and it's not so much about like us being good enough. It's us being connected with Jesus. We are always going to be imperfect, but do we make the decision to be connected in his kingdom? It's about kingdom citizenship, right? Jesus is the king. He is enthroned. We get to choose whether we bow our knee to him or not. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as Jesus went up, behold, two men stood by them. Like, it's almost like they walk up to the side in white apparel. And they're like, guys, why stand you looking up to heaven? I just love it. They're watching Jesus go up to heaven and angels come up and they're like, what are you doing just standing here? It's so funny. Um, they say, this same Jesus, which is taken up from you to heaven, 
shall come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So like Jesus is going to come back and his kingdom is real. And so they go back to Jerusalem from this Mount of Olives, um, which is a Sabbath stage journey. That just means it's a, a pretty short walk, basically. And when they were come in, they went into an upper room where Peter, James, and John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, and Bartholomew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James, all were. Basically, he's giving you a list of all the apostles. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. See, it's not until this moment, and you're going to see this later on, that uh, Jesus' brothers seem to be converted. Basically, what we see in the letters of Paul and others' accounts, particularly Jesus' brother James, becomes a convert to Jesus' ministry after he sees him resurrected. And then James is going to become one of the leaders here in Jerusalem. But the point I want to make is that they continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. This, uh, you don't even pick up on it probably, but this is a very significant shift in this ancient Judaic community. And, and basically in almost every other city at the time, the, the fact that women are included in this, in this community, in this leadership, is a very significant thing and says something about how Jesus runs his organization. Now, as they're gathered together, they decide that there's a need to appoint another apostle. Uh, They stick with the number 12 because honestly, anciently, it symbolizes perfection and power. And the number 11 anciently just symbolizes chaos. And you can't be sticking with chaos. So they're going to appoint a new apostle. So notice how they do it. They appoint two guys, Joseph, Barsabbas, uh, and Matthias. And then they prayed and they gave forth lots. Now, this sounds weird to, to us to cast lots, but this, this is a very common thing in the ancient world. In fact, the term Urim and Thummim just refers to any device used to cast lots and divine the will of God. And, and there's a, several different methods. One is by using different colored or marked stones that produce like binary outcomes, meaning yes or no, good or bad, selected or rejected, kind of like flipping a coin. Another way to cast lots is you could use broken pieces of potteries and and you could write the name of the individual on them that um, was selected. Uh, The broken piece of pottery is called ostraca in, in Greek, and that's where we get our modern word of ostracize from classical Athens where the ostraca were used in votes to determine who would be expelled from the city. In the Bible, you you see them casting lots when the land of Canaan is divided. You see it when Jonah is divined to be the one that is guilty. It's a regular, regular part of the temple to assign duties. This is how the high priest is generally selected in the Old Testament. It's how you select the scapegoat. It's how Nephi and his brothers make decisions. This just like flipping a coin almost. What do you make of that? Could discerning the will of God be that simple? I honestly wonder if we're overcomplicating Revelation today. What if you just made a decision 
and went for it. Even a heck if you flipped a coin and stopped worrying about it was worrying about whether it was quote unquote the right decision. I honestly think most of the time you'd be better off if you cast lots and went for it. And just trust that God would take care of you. Anyway, uh, these apostles are waiting until the Feast of Pentecost to go out and preach. And Pentecost is this celebration of the beginning uh, of the early weeks of harvest. In Palestine, there's basically two harvests each year. There's the early harvest that comes during the month of late May, early June, and the final harvest comes in the fall. Pentecost is a celebration of the beginning of the early wheat harvest. So it means that Pentecost always falls sometime in the middle of May to early June. And according to the Old Testament, you, you'd uh, go to the day of the celebration of first fruits, the Pentecost. And the beginning of that day, you, you would count off um, 50 days. So the, the first day you, you, you get something, count off 50 days. And the 50th day would be the day of Pentecost, right? So first fruits is the beginning of the barley harvest. And Pentecost is the celebration of the beginning of the wheat harvest. And since it's always about 50 days after first fruit, since it's 50 days equals seven weeks, it's cute that it is a week of weeks later. Now, Pentecost is a pilgrim festival. So this means at this time, Jerusalem has a ton of Jews from all over the world coming to celebrate together. It's also a holiday. There's no servile work being done. Schools is out. Shops are closed. It's a day to celebrate. And so there's a lot of people available to listen. So as all of this is going down, the disciples gather together. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the house where they were sitting. This is the same imagery used as the this uh, Red Sea is split right there, where God splits it. And there, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire, and it sat upon each of them. Now, now again, this imagery is clearly associated with the Shekinah, the presence of God, which is traditionally present in his holy house, the tabernacle, and in the temple. But since the time of the Babylonian captivity, the Shekinah has not been seen on the temple and and has been a point of lamentation for the Jewish people. But now all of the sudden, it is not a place being sanctified, but people being sanctified. That's cool. So these individuals are becoming the temple of God, the actors of God, where God's spirit, his spirit is literally in them. And they are to go out and do God's work as his image bearers. This is just awesome as we think about how God functions in the kingdom of God. And the disciples are filled with the Holy Ghost and they began to speak with other tongues as the spirit gave them utterance meaning that they start talking and people from all over the place can understand them. And dwelling in Jerusalem at, uh, uh, right at that moment were Jews from every nation under heaven. And every man heard them, the disciples, speak in their own language. Now, they are amazed and marvel 
They're like, behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Now they can tell they're Galileans by the way they dress and their accents. And the Galileans, like they're, they're basically, and I know this sounds rude to you, but they are a bunch of rednecks from Nowhereville. They are not known for learning. And they're like, if these guys are from Galilee, how is it that all of us can understand in our own language wherein we were born? And, and like there, there are Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, people from all over Mesopotamia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Syria, Cyrene, Rome, Crete, Arabia, like all over the world, a whole bunch of different languages. And they were all amazed. And as they listen to these guys preach, they're like, what does this mean? And other people are like, dude, they're just drunk. And I love, I love that justification. And Peter obviously finds it funny. Peter stands up and he, he speaks louder than the rest and the rest listen to him. And he's like, listen, men of Judea, everybody in Jerusalem, be it known to you and listen to my words. We're not drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. Here's what's happening. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy spoken by the prophet Joel, where he says, it shall come to pass in the last days that God will pour out my spirit upon all flesh before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so he's saying, this, you hearing in your own language is the spirit making this happen in preparation of God's kingdom and anybody that listens will be saved. And he, he goes on, he says, ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. He, he's like, dude, you know, he's from God. He made people, blind people see which God did in the midst of you. He's like, go ask anybody, tons of witnesses around, right? As ye yourself also know, there's just no arguing with it. There's no question. Jesus was delivered by the Sanhedrin and you have taken him and crucified him and slain him. But God hath raised him up. He has loosed him from the pains of death. It was not possible that Jesus should be holden to death. Now I asked you to look for what they preach and here I'm going to make it plain. They preach that Jesus was raised for the dead. Boom. This is our most central message. That is, that is why we share the Book of Mormon because it is, it's a witness of his resurrection throughout the entire book. If Jesus is resurrected, it changes everything. Our hopes, our dreams, our chance to start over all of it. Peter's relentless message you will see is that Jesus is resurrected and it should be our relentless message. Think about what it really means to be able to live again. Think about how powerful that is. Peter goes on, he says, this Jesus hath God raised up, resurrected. We are witnesses. Therefore, by, be, by the right hand of God exalted, again, this imagery of Jesus taking up and taking his part in the kingdom and now being enthroned, okay? Having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, 
which you now see and hear. So Jesus promised the Holy Ghost, you are hearing evidence of the Holy Ghost. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know a surety that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, Lord and Christ. He's saying, notice what this means. It means that since Jesus is risen, he was and is the promised king. He is the Messiah, the snake crusher prophesied in the very beginning of Genesis. The one we were searching for all through the Old Testament. The one we thought, well, maybe it's Jesus. Well, now Jesus is for sure. This is him. Peter is coming straight out with it. No mincing words. Jesus kind of dances around it sometimes. Peter, no mincing words, no hints. He just comes out and says it. He's like, Jesus is king. No wiggle room. Well, if that's true, the people are like, then what do we do? And Peter says, repent, turn again, begin again, that word, right? Begin again and be baptized. Make this outward symbol of your connection to him. Come into his kingdom. Become a citizen of his kingdom. Become a son or daughter in his family. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, And this will cancel your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What a beautiful promise. What do you do? Turn to God. Take his name. Have the consequence of sin, death, and hell remitted. And receive the power of God into your life. That's it. When they heard it, they gladly received it. And were baptized. And that same day, 3,000 people were baptized. So what's the, what's the result of the atonement of Jesus Christ? What's the work of his redemption? And many wonders and signs are done by the apostles and they believed and were together and had all things in common. And they sold their goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. So there's the, the introduction to the, the book of Acts. And Jesus is lifted up as the true king and he gives his spirit to his disciples and they go out and act like Jesus would act, caring for those in need, bringing order to the chaos. There's no hand wringing over whether or not they're worthy or good enough. Nope. They just rejoice in Jesus's victory and they go out and do good. That's the fruits of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now next, Luke in chapters two through five does something clever. It's a piece of chiasmus, if you remember it. And it's like, you remember where there's this repeating theme on the edges with the emphasis on the center story. So you got the outer idea, then the inner idea, and then the central feature. So Luke starts with the outer idea in Acts chapter two, verse 46. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple breaking bread from house to house and did eat their meals with gladness and a singleness of heart. And that theme is then bookended over in Acts chapter 5, verse 42. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to preach Jesus Christ. So we start with this temple imagery, this, this conduit to God on earth. Then the next inner ring of Luke's story is two stories about Peter healing and being put on trial um, for this healing by the Jewish leaders. So the story goes like this. Peter and John go up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, being in the ninth hour. That means 3 p.m. 
Now, devout Jews observe three times of prayer at the temple, 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. And the special feature of the first and last prayer time was the offering of the morning and evening sacrifices here. And while they're going to the temple, there's a, a man who is lame. He's been, he hasn't been able to walk since he was born. And since he, he can't do useful employment, he sits at the gate of the temple and asks for people's mercy and money so that he can care for himself. And as he asks Peter for money, Peter fastens his eyes on him and says, look at me. And you can imagine this guy's used to like just avoiding eye contact and looking at the ground and asking for mercy. But Peter's like, look up. Oh, look what the atonement does, right? And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive some money. But Peter crushes that. He says, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took the lame man by the hand and lifted him up. And immediately this man's feet and ankles bones received strength. And he leaping stood up and walked and entered with them in the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. <laughs> what's, the, what's the result of the atonement of Jesus Christ? Now, this dude leaping in the temple definitely gets some attention. And people are like, what? So people, people, Peter says, you think as though by my own power or holiness, we made this man walk? Nah, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son, Jesus. What is the message? Whom you delivered up, who you denied in the presence of Pilate. When he was determined to let him go, meaning Pilate was determined to let him go and you denied him. You denied the Holy One. You denied the Just One. You desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And you killed the Prince of Life, whom God has raised from the dead. We are witnesses. Notice this relentless witness of the resurrection. This is the, what we preach. This is our message. Uh, and I just want to throw this out here. It's not so much this witness that he suffered for our sins. It's this witness that he's resurrected. It, both are true, but the tone is different. I think we need to adjust our message a little bit. And Jesus' name, through faith on his name, hath this man been made strong, whom you see and know. Faith which is by him hath given him this perfect health. Turn to God. Be changed. Have your sins canceled. This time of refreshing is coming from the presence of God. Start by being innerly changed. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive at the time of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant, which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, in, in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first hath been God raised up his son, Jesus sent him to bless you. <laughs> Peter, I'm a fan. I love this. Like his message, God sent Jesus to bless you. And he resurrected Jesus to bless you. 
And as Peter and John speak and teach in the temple, the priests in the temple, not happy with this like screamed out message that you are murderers of the prince of life, mm, that will get their attention. They send security, the captain of the temple guards, and um, they're, they're really like not happy that they're saying that Jesus is resurrected. And so they lay hands on Peter and John and put them in, I don't know, like the, the temple prison, the hold for the next day. Um, but it says that there's about 5,000 people in the temple that heard this big preaching right here. So the next day after spending the night in the slammer, uh, the, the rulers, the, the elders and the scribes, including Annas, the high priest, um, and many of the, the family members of the high priest gathered together at Jerusalem. And they, they bring in Peter and John and they say, by what power or by what name have you done this? And again, Jesus kind of talks around this sometimes. This is not Peter's style. Peter being filled with the Holy Ghost says, you rulers of the people, you elders of Israel, if we're examined of the good de deed done to this important man, he's like, you're putting us on trial for healing a man? For healing a man. Let me tell you by what power I do it. Be it known unto you all, to all the people of Israel. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, who God raised from the dead. Even by him did this man stand before you whole. <laughs> I'm serious. A relentless witness of the resurrection. We are sent here to preach. That is our message. Okay? Now, when the council saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Uh, but it's inarguable that this man was couldn't walk and now he can walk and they can't say anything against a man walking. And so they, they kind of have a side counsel. And they're like, this is a notable miracle. We can't deny it. But we can't let them spread this message of us murdering Jesus and Jesus being responsible for a miracle. So let's threaten them to not speak any more about Jesus. And so they called Peter and John back in and they commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John are like, nope. They're like, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than God, come on now. We cannot speak the things which we have seen and heard. They're like, we're going to talk about Jesus, but they threaten them more and they have no case. And so they let them go. Finding nothing about how they could punish them. They, they don't have a case. The, the man's 40 years old. He spent 40 years lame and now he's miraculously healed. Okay, so I told you that this is kind of chiastic. So that's one side of the symmetrical story. Here's the other side of the symmetrical story. It starts in chapter 5. Now, by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought. You saw the first one, they go on and do more. Um, like the, the people are just so excited because of these miracles. And there, there's men and women joining the movement. 
They bring their sick out into the street and lay them on beds and couches. And the shadow of Peter passing over them helps heal them. And they were healed every one. And the high priest rose up and is just furious with them. And so because of this healing that just goes on and this growing movement and popularity, they lay their hands on the apostles and put them in prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opens the prison doors. That's a pretty sweet prison break and brings them forth. And the angel gives them direct command and says, go speak in the temple all the words of this life an interesting phrase think on that what are what are the words of this life pay attention to what they teach and so they go into the temple early in the morning and taught and when the high priest calls his council together um they sent to the prison to have the apostles brought in but they're not in the prison and then they hear the rumor like they see the prison shut safety leave the guards standing outside but when they open it up open the locks they're not there. But they hear a, a, a rumor. They have a message that these guys that you had in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. And when the, the, the captain and the officers brought them without violence, they don't beat them up because they, they fear that the rest of the people listening to them are going to pick up stones and just kill them, right? So they bring them nicely to be put on trial. And the, the council is like, we told you not to preach in Jesus's name, but you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and you bring this man's blood upon us. Well, duh, obviously. And Peter says, we ought to obey God rather than men. And the God of our fathers raised up Jesus who you slew and hanged on a tree. What's the message? Him hath God exalted with his right hand to become a prince and a savior for to give a new life to Israel and forgiveness of sins. What is our message? It's right there. Jesus is raised from the dead. He is the king and he will give us a fresh start and cancel our sins. There's no more hopeful message. Go out and teach it right now. We are witnesses of these things and so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given that we obey. And they that heard it are cut to the heart and they're like, let's kill him. We, we can't let this go on. But there's a counselor there, a pretty famous um, um, theologian named Gamaliel. He's a doctor of the law, great reputation. And he says, dude, give them room. He says, you remember like a while ago, there was this guy named Thaddeus. He was boasting about his movement and he just got himself killed and it really came to nothing. And then after Thaddeus, there was that guy of Judas and Galilee and he drew a whole bunch of people after him and it was dispersed and came to nothing. I'm telling you, stop messing with these guys. Leave them alone. Because if it's a work of men like you think it is, nothing will happen. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. And so instead, they call the apostles forward, beat the crap out of them. They just beat them and said, I'm telling you, stop talking about Jesus. And then they let them go. 
and the apostles depart from the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. Woo! A relentless witness of Jesus Christ in his resurrection. Okay, so we, we said that there's kind of this symmetry. What is the center point that Luke is pointing us towards? Well, the centerpiece says this, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken, where they were assembled together, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And, and with great power gave the apostles witnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great was the grace upon them. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought their prices and the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according to his need. So what's the the part that Luke is emphasizing? What's the message, his centerpiece? It is that disciples of Jesus Christ, once we are liberated from thinking so much about ourselves, can go out and have fun and do good. We, We can spread good, spread wealth, be united, be helpful, and we're not so stressed. We don't have to get status from all these other things. We just are. Jesus is resurrected. We will be resurrected. We are taken care of. We are good. So go out and do good. That's his center point message. Now, with this theme of taking care of others and particularly taking care of the poor and sharing your money, there's a strange story here that I don't really know what to do with. See, there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they sell some property and donate it to the welfare of others, but they lie about how much they get and keep some of the the profit back. Then when they're confronted about it, they both fall dead. What do we make of that? I think for most of my life, I've just thought, obey God and his prophets or you'll get your butt kicked. You better pay your tithing or you're going to die. Like bad things going to happen to you if you're disobedient. And I just don't know that I'm convinced that that's the message of this story. I think there's definitely a reality to when we rebel against God, we open ourselves up to chaos and hardship. I see that all over the place. What isn't specifically mentioned in this story is that God is smiting them. It never says God smites them. We kind of imply that. That's how we read the text, but it never says that. I don't know if they're so full of fear that they just cracked. I don't know if there's something more cultural here. Like people are passing out all over the place in the Book of Mormon when they feel the spirit. And maybe it's something like that. Maybe there's something we're missing here. Now, God does smite some people, curse some people, especially influential antichrist in the Book of Mormon. But that seems to be a strategic move that saves thousands of souls from heartache. This story just doesn't seem to rise to that level. I don't really know. I have questions about this story. And honestly, I'm just going to let them be questions. I don't really get it. But I'm getting enough about the nature of God from the rest of the story that I'm willing just to let this be one that I ask about later. Cool? 
All right, so what, what did we learn today? I think there's a couple of messages. First, the, the temple of God sets us up to have God's power move through us more fully. Second, our message of hope should be unrelentingly focused on the reality of Christ's resurrection and what that means for us. And the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants are, are all concrete witnesses of this joyful fact. Third, when we can stop stressing about whether or not we're individually good enough, we're free to go out and serve those who really need it. Please accept this invitation. Go out there and do some good in your little corner. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.